Well, hey, it's really good to be with you. Thanks for the kind introduction, Aaron. Um, on behalf of the 140 congregations in our region of churches, uh, greetings. It's good to be with you. Um, one of the things that uh, means so much to me about this church is that your leaders are not only um, exerting influence here, but they're also ministering to the churches throughout our district. And you know, Aaron and Becky as well are directing care for planters across the nation uh, with our movement. And so, and Brandon doing uh, a lot of um, sermon coaching. And, and so I just, I'm just thankful that, that uh, what God is doing here not only represents and impacts this region, but really is making a difference across the nation. So thanks for just being a kingdom place that really supports and encourages uh, a broader influence for the kingdom of God. So it's a joy to be with you uh, today. Now, if we uh, would think about the last five, six, uh, five or six years together, and if we were to categorize or summarize the, the nature of relationships in families, in the church, or in the culture at large, I think the best summary or one of the more common summary statements that we would have is, this is what divides us. Um, According to the Pew Research data, there was a sizable shift that began in about 2014 in our nation. And in that research, what they found was that more and more people began moving from the center in like their political and other ideologies to more extreme perspectives on the left and the right. Now, as we know, uh, cultural controversies of recent years have only widened that gap. Um, now, if you think the church is exempt from these issues, all you need to do is, uh, for those few of you who maybe do this, open Twitter, and uh, you can read any comment thread after a Christianity Today or a Gospel Coalition post, and you'll find hundreds of examples of angry people, quick to condemn, label, marginalize uh, those with whom they disagree. Now, though, though social media or partisan news sources may not be relevant to your story, what is undeniable is that the, the moral, the ideological shifts, even in just the broader culture outside the walls of this church, uh, they, they challenge unity, and they will continue to challenge our unity uh, even inside of these walls in light of those different values and norms that surround us. Now, one of the ways that I've prayed for the church in recent years is that these days of conflict, these days of division, and, and even persecution that we might feel in the broader landscape, that it would actually motivate us all the more to, to run to that which unites us. That God would use these experiences to drive us back to his word, to, to um, offer this message of hope and life that, again, unifies us. Um, now, the great thing about God's Word is that it gives us a lot of great instructions related to how it is that we are as His family to live with and love one another. Um, in particular, today, we're going to be zeroing in on what it means to love those who are different than us. And we're going to be exploring this in Romans 15, 1 through 7. So if you have a Bible, uh, want to open it up, feel free to do so. It'll also be on the screen here. And uh, we're just going to be thinking about how in a time of controversy and conflict, um, what does the church need to be reminded of? Okay. And we're going to be thinking about how, what God has to say about this from Romans again, 15, 1 through 7. So let me read that, and then we'll pray and jump right in. 
So Romans 15, starting at verse 1. We who are strong ought to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Each of us should please our neighbors for their good to build them up. For even Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the insults of those who insult you have fallen on me. For everything that was written in the past was written to teach us so that through the endurance taught in the scriptures and the encouragement they provide, we might have hope. May the God who gives endurance and encouragement give you the same attitude of mind toward each other that Christ Jesus had, so that with one mind and one voice, you may glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Accept one another, then, just as Christ accepted you, in order to bring praise to God. So join me in prayer. Father, we thank you for your word, that that the scriptures really are the Holy Spirit-inspired words of yours for your people, and that we can rest in them, we can uh, find our transformation inside of them. And so I just pray today that you'd open our eyes, soften our hearts, um, help our ears to hear well what it is that you would have for us so that we might experience deep and meaningful transformation uh, through your very uh, work among us. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, The pastor and theologian Francis Schaeffer once wrote these words. If we do not display beauty in the way we treat one another, we destroy the truth we proclaim. Okay, hear that again. If we do not display beauty in the way we treat one another, we destroy the truth we proclaim. Now, what this quote emphasizes is that our love and unity, it's a validation of something. It's a validation of the idea that God is here. Okay, in other words, if you want to prove to Dubuque that you know and love Jesus, then you need to start by loving one another. Another way of saying it is that if River City Church is known more for its division than its unity in the gospel, then no one's going to care about what you have to say. So, as, as you let that quote sink in that I shared with you, let me, let me share with you this simple outline for today's message. When it comes to how we love one another today, this is what we're going to learn. Number one, what we must do. Number two, why we can't do it. Number three, how Jesus did it perfectly. And then number four, how through him you can do it too. Okay, so let's start. What, what we must do. Verse one and two, let's go back there. We who are strong ought to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Each of us should please our neighbors for their good to build them up. So this verse starts describing two different kinds of people, the strong and the weak. Now this actually is describing spiritual strength and spiritual weakness that was present in the church in Rome back in the day this letter was written. Now, to help us understand what the author of this book, Paul, is referring to, we can look back at chapter 14, where it becomes clear that the church in Rome was comprised of both Jewish and Gentile, non-Jewish Christians, who brought to the church various degrees of baggage, okay, spiritual and cultural baggage, and it was leading to conflict. And I'm not going to take the time to have you turn there, but let me just summarize a few of the controversies we see in chapter 14. Um, In verse 1, there was quarreling 
over various opinions. Verse 2 and 3, conflict over what was religiously appropriate to eat. Uh, Verse 6 reveals dissension over whether or not the Sabbath day of rest was to be observed. Verse 21 shows the controversies also included the appropriateness of drinking wine. So there was a lot of conflict over what could be described as secondary or less important issues when it comes to the scriptures. So what was the church in Rome to do? Paul was observing this conflict, and this is what he said again. We who are strong ought to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Each of us should please our neighbors for their good to build them up. So what Paul is teaching here is that uh, if you're spiritually mature, though you may have a fixed view on certain issues, uh, even if you feel that view is right, it's not worth engaging in debate if it's going to lead to conflict in the church. So in in other words, if you're spiritually mature, if you've walked with the Lord a long time, or maybe you know the Bible well, you should be the first of all people to lay aside those views, those secondary views, uh, and and not argue of of them. So if this is you, uh, your focus is putting aside preferences, putting aside certain things in order to actively focus and engage on more important matters of faith. Now, it's worth qualifying that that what Paul is not saying is that we should please others to the neglect of the gospel, right? Or or that we should tolerate sinful behavior happening uh, among the believers here. We We should confront those things lovingly and gently. But what Paul is actually getting at here is that those who are mature should so love they're less spiritually mature brothers and sisters in faith that they're willing to sacrifice winning arguments over differences out of the good of their neighbor. Now, it's summarized uh, nicely, this whole principle in Titus 3.9, which says, but avoid foolish controversies and genealogies and arguments and quarrels about the law because they're unprofitable and useless. Now, as is often the case, it's a little bit difficult to to transfer a direct parallel from what Paul was saying to those in Rome to today. Uh, It was an ancient culture. But let me me give you some examples, perhaps, of some of these secondary issues that that are relevant today. Okay, so categories could include things like what I referenced in the introduction, political views. It could be educational choices for our children, uh, private, public, right, or homeschool. Uh, It could be the use of alcohol, musical styles, the clothes we wear, or our appearance. Um, Do we have tattoos? How do we do our hair? Right, all those things. There are secondary theological issues like views of the end times, right? Some of us sometimes want to divide over those things. There can be entertainment choices, right, that we have. Now, as you think about this list, what I want you to understand is this. As you mature in faith, your views over some of those issues and and how you manage those issues, they may change informed by your maturity. And that there may or may not be biblical reasons to say this view is better than another view. However, according to Romans 15, 1 and 2, we should not allow those issues to become sources of division. Rather, again, those who are more spiritually mature should avoid certain arguments for the sake of unity, for the, for the sake of the important matters of God's word and the gospel. Now, when we do this, what Paul says happens is we're building up one another in faith. 
And so one question you need to consider is, how is God inviting you uh, to, to give up your rights, to, to avoid winning arguments and the need to do so, to give up your preferences, whatever they may be, for the sake of building up others? Now, this is particularly relevant, too. It's kind of a secondary application of this. But as you think about those who are far from Jesus, who may come in and, and begin to belong before they believe, you're going to be tested in this as well, right? Think of someone perhaps like with something like gender identity issues who would come in the space, or, or maybe there's an addiction or something they're wrestling through, and, and there might be something in their appearance or their habits or even their language that, that could be uh, considered somewhat unacceptable. But out of love, right, there may, may be a season of time where you, you put those things aside in order to create ho- a space of hospitality, in order to focus on the more important things of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Because it is this gospel which not only unites us, but it also saves and transforms hearts and lives that that may now be lost, but but may soon be found by the saving grace of God. So, we've considered what what it looks like to surrender our rights for the sake of the gospel. But now let's consider this. Number two, why we can't do it. So we saw number one, what we need to do. Number two, why we can't do it. And so this is really getting at the heart of why is it so hard for us at times to not want to pick a fight over those things we're passionate about, these secondary issues. Now, the observation we can make from this text is that it's a problem for all of us because he was speaking to both those who are mature and those who are weak, okay? And so um, we see this challenge in verse 1. Again, bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves, So yeah, it suggests this is a challenge that all of us face. Now, it sounds a lot like what we read also in Philippians 2, 3, and 4, which which speaks to this similar issue. It says, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. So according to that verse, it actually names the problem. According to Philippians 2, we struggle deferring to others, putting aside these differences, because we tend to be selfish and conceited. Now, all you need to do is is turn on the news today, and depending on your news source, you're going to hear stories convincing you that your view on certain issues is right, and that anyone who disagrees with you is wrong, or evil, or ignorant. The problem is not having convictions on these issues. The problem is when you hold those convictions in a conceited way, where you say, not only is this my view, but this is my view, and I'm incapable of being wrong in my view. And anyone who disagrees with me is a lesser person. You see, holding your view in that way, it's not humble, but is, according to Philippians 2, selfish and conceited. And so, What's interesting is that Paul takes it a step further, though, here when it comes to the church. Not only does he want you to be humble in your personal convictions or secondary issues, but he wants you to avoid actually even talking about them in the church. In other words, he's asking you to set aside those convictions when you're in fellowship with one another so you can keep your focus on the things of first importance, again, on God's word and on declaring and demonstrating his gospel. So we've seen what we must do. We've seen why we don't do it. And now let's consider how Jesus did it perfectly. Look at verse 3. For even Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, 
The insults of those who insult you have fallen on me. Now here Paul, he's quoting uh, from the Old Testament, the Psalms, and he goes to Psalm 69. It's fitting that he goes there uh, because it actually explains for us what it is that Jesus did for us. This Psalm is quoted many times throughout the New Testament to help us understand what happened to Jesus as he went to the cross for us. Now, we're not going to turn there either today due to time, but uh, feel free to read Psalm 69 this week. You'll see this beautiful picture that describes what Jesus did for us. You're going to see a picture of a person who is forsaken by his friends, and he's attacked by his enemies. Now, if you're familiar with the death of Jesus on the cross, you know that he was beaten and he was whipped, that he had a crown of thorns driven upon his head, He was paraded naked and bloody through the streets, and he carried his own cross upon which he would be crucified. And yet, as his hands were nailed to that cross, as he was suspended in humiliation before the crowd, what was his response? Well, according to Luke 22, or 23, 34, he said this, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they're doing. In that moment, He looked at his accusers, he looked at his abusers, and he what? He showed mercy. He he bore their sinfulness upon himself because he he was looking through their offensive behavior, he was looking through their insults and scorn, and he was looking right into their hearts, right to your heart and my heart. He knew the suffering that he was enduring was for a greater purpose. Namely, to endure the wrath of God for our sin in order to what? Purchase our forgiveness. So his concern at that moment wasn't the nuances of their behavior, wasn't winning any arguments related to their insults. No, his concern was their hearts. He saw through their brutality to the need that they had for saving grace. Jesus loved perfectly as he took upon himself the reproach of others. And it's this same kind of love that he's calling us to. So we've seen what we must do to love others. We've seen why we don't do it due to selfishness and conceit. And we see now how it is that Jesus did it perfectly as he bore the reproach of others out of grace and love for them. And so now let's look at number four, how through him... We can live this way too. Through him, we can live this way too. Now, what I want us to see here is that our ability to set aside differences for the sake of unity in the gospel, it comes from three things. A model, it comes from a method, uh, it comes from a model, a means, and a motivation. Okay, we're going to see those very briefly here. Now, the model for unity is, as you might guess, what we just looked at. It's Jesus. It's how he lived. It's how he loved in the same way as he bore our shame and our sin for us. We can bear the shame of others, even those who disagree with us. Now we see this idea again, and it it happens again in verse 7, accept one another then, just as Christ accepted you. Okay, so that's the model we're to follow. Jesus welcomed us and welcomes us in our messiness. Therefore, we of all people should welcome others as well, in their mess. 
And, and the means for unity of this, it's seen in verses 4 and 5 now. So look again, Romans 12, verses 4 and 5, this is what it says. For everything that was written in the past was written to teach us so that through the endurance taught in the scriptures and the encouragement they provide, we may have hope. May the God who gives endurance and encouragement give you the same attitude of mind towards each other that Christ Jesus had ultimately towards us. Now, uh, with these words, we can zero in on, on how this idea that through the scriptures, we have endurance or encouragement that helps us to endure. Okay, so the idea is this, that in the Bible, there are, there are scriptures filled with messages of encouragement that strengthen us in this journey. Now, how is this relevant as we think about our struggle with one another? Well, it's relevant in that um, when you struggle with a difficult person, okay, uh, we see this not, not only in the church, but of course in our families and in other contexts, perhaps coworkers, um, you're not going to find the encouragement to love them by fixating on what's wrong with them, right? Uh, you've all been there, right? Where you rehearse at the end of a frustrating experience. Perhaps it's like Thanksgiving with the family, right? We can fixate on the problems. You're not going to find encouragement there. Where are you going to find encouragement? You're going to find encouragement by looking at and fixating on God's word. Now imagine with me that you're having one of those difficult conversations and you're thinking, God, help me. to know how to respond well. Well, just meditate. Just think for a moment how it is that your mind will be conditioned in that response if you think about 1 Corinthians 13, which says love is patient. Love is kind. Love does not envy. Envy. It's not boastful. It is not proud. As you meditate on those words, it's going it's to change the way you respond, isn't it? Uh, perhaps you're tempted to, to lash out in anger towards others, and then, then I want you to think about Ephesians 4.29, for example, which says, Do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs, that it may benefit those who listen. It it, it keeps our mouth, it keeps our heart, it keeps our mind in check when we think about scriptures like this. Because our primary objective is not to win an argument, but to build others up for their benefit. That doesn't mean... We, we may not challenge their thinking at times, but it means that, that our primary agenda and the words that we use are to say, like, how can I really strengthen them in faith now by how it is I respond in this moment? So as we dwell on these biblical truths, what does it do? It gives us encouragement to endure, right? To love even those who are unlovely at times, just like ourselves. So we've seen that through Jesus, we have the model of how to love and the means of how to love through his holy word. And now in verse 6-7, we see the motive to love, okay? Here's what it says. So that with one mind and one voice, you may glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, accept one another then just as Christ accepted you in order to bring praise to God. So the motivation for loving others as Jesus loves us is to what? Give glory and praise to God. You're telling a watching world that the world may behave one way, 
But the church, we're going to be distinctly different. We're going to be an oddly unique picture of unity and love in a world that is largely defined by its division and differences. And in this way, what are we doing? We're illustrating the gospel. We're illustrating the work of Jesus to bring together those who are different in unity and love. And in doing so, we're giving glory to God and we're declaring the gospel and demonstrating that gospel for the world that surrounds us. Now, years ago, I had the opportunity to hear a missiologist. His name is Leonard Sweet. And uh, he was talking about pastoral leadership and how it's changed in today's church. It used to be that a pastor could view their church like a bell curve, okay? So if you look at the population of the church, it's this bell curve. And and there might be some kind of unique or extreme people on the left and right of that bell curve, be it worldview or political view or whatever. But the the reality is that the church is largely represented by by what unites them. There's preferences, perhaps even nationally, like there was this more theme, this accepted and understood theme that Christianity is the the forming worldview. Uh, But but what he wanted us to see is that that bell curve has largely changed in, in reflection in large part of our culture. Today, many churches don't look like a bell. They look like a like a well. In, in other words, the middle's fallen out. And, and, and this is in part, again, due to the polarization I talked about at the beginning of this message. And this is why that, that in many churches, even pastors who've been, you know, they're in their 50s and 60s, they would say, man, stuff that's happened in the last few years, it has been more divisive than any time in my years of ministry together. Now, now though this may make us feel a little bit discouraged, what I want to do is actually say we have an amazing opportunity. Imagine that curve now and then think about the cross of Jesus Christ in the middle. You see, we have an amazing opportunity in a world that is largely divided, filled with strife, filled with disagreement, to actually magnify and glorify uh, in a way unlike any other uh, any time in recent history this God of the gospel, right? Because, because we're setting ourselves apart from a divided world that surrounds us. The, see, the church is uniquely prepared to face this day and this age because we are united by the most powerful message of hope and redemption that the universe has ever seen. No matter our politics or the racial challenges we face or, or the religious divisions, whatever is dividing us, we've got the power to unite, united in Jesus, who what? He shows us how to love sacrificially, united in God's word, that what? It strengthens us to endure. We're united by a gospel-shaped love that radiates God's glory so that all who look at the church, that all who look at River Community Church, that, that, that they see a supernatural community, a community that defies the odds, that, that looks distinctly different than, than the community that surrounds us. Why? Because despite our differences, we have a treasure in the gospel of Jesus Christ that not only changes our hearts, but it adopts us into a new way of living, into a new family of brothers and sisters who sacrificially love one another despite our differences. 
Now, a few years ago, I had the opportunity to hear uh, Dr. Peter Shaw, and he's a professor from Trinity Seminary, and he talked about how to help us better understand the uh, racial and ethnic divisions in our culture. Now, he shared a list in this talk that, was, uh, that had come together, a couple lists actually, from Christian sociologists, and they had re researched common questions of the culture. Now, the first list that he shared were from unbelievers and skeptics in the 60s, okay, so some time ago. And he said these were the questions that these skeptics and unbelieving communities were asking about the Christian faith. Questions like, is there a God? Is Christ the only way to God? Did Christ rise from the dead? Are, are the biblical documents reliable? Do science and the Bible agree? Now, according to some contemporary research, another researcher or sociologist published a new list of questions. And this is really representative of what the broader, unbelieving, skeptical culture is asking about Christianity. There are questions like this. Why are Christians imposing their morality on others? How can I trust a church that has done terrible things in the name of Christ? What about different forms of hypocrisy? Does your belief really transform lives? Does your church serve those who are in need? Or is it just another self-serving group? Now, what I want us to see from these two different sets of questions is that the questions being asked by skeptics and unbelievers, you know, uh, what, 70 years ago or 60 years ago, they were answered largely by just going to the Bible and proving its trustworthiness. But the questions being asked by unbelievers today, they're answered more by the church, by how in light of the gospel, we live with and love one another. And this brings us back to the quote that I shared at the beginning of our time together. Francis Schaeffer said this, if we do not display beauty in the way we treat one another, we destroy the truth we proclaim. If we do not display beauty in the way we treat one another, we destroy the truth we proclaim. Now, in light of this, how is God inviting you to lay aside your comfort and your rights in order to sacrificially spend yourself on building up others in Christ? How is God inviting you to so focus on his love, the beauty of his gospel, and the encouragement of his word, that with one voice, you would glorify God as you sacrificially love one another? Now, in light of this message, we have an amazing opportunity as a community of faith, for those of you who are Christians, to now participate in the Lord's Supper. And uh, this idea of communion, it's uh, something instituted by Jesus back when he was with his disciples as he gathered with them and he broke bread saying, this is my body broken for you. And he, he invited them to drink from the cup. This is my representative of my blood that will be spilled for you. And as we do this, the way it works here at River City is that uh, there'll be three songs that will be played. You're invited to just sing and worship along. But uh, as you are led to do so, you can go back and take of the bread, dip it in the cup, and then take. And just want to encourage you, in light of this message, to be meditating in particular, 
not only in how it is that Jesus gave so much on our behalf, so worship him for that reason, but also reflect upon the idea that that there is a form of love, a form of sacrificial, self-giving love that that we're being invited to not only uh, uh, experience in the eating and the drinking of this bread and cup, but also to live out in our day-to-day lives as we love one another. And so let me pray now, and then we'll invite the musicians up to lead us forward. Father, we just thank you so much for your word and how it's, man, it's exceedingly relevant and beautiful for how it is that we as your church should live in the day-to-day life. And we thank you that our behaviors, they're not empty behaviors that are just a list of do's and don'ts. They're actually... um, behaviors that are formed in the best news ever given, that you, as your son, came and lived a perfect life and died a death that we deserved for sin so that we could have new life in you. So I pray that that, that in dwelling upon that, Father, that it would just begin to form and maybe even shake loose those little remnants of, of bitterness or irritation with those around us, that we might actually be more uh, tolerant, uh, not for the sake of of just being apathetic. Father, we know that we can't affirm sin in the world, and yet in the same part, we can love the unlovely. We can extend grace to those whose worldviews and experiences have have drawn different uh, convictions in their life because you loved us first, because our, our hope and the message that we want to live and demonstrate in our love is, is truly that the one answer for all the problems in the world is found in you and your message of hope and life in Christ. And so may that motivate us and, and change us as we leave from this day forward. In Jesus' name, amen.